Hello, book friends. My name is Jocelyn, and this is the Literary Therapist Podcast. I started this podcast because I love talking about books, and I love talking about therapy, and I thought putting the two together would be an interesting adventure. Thank you for taking this adventure with me as we go through realms far and fictional. Now, let's start our session. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. This does not constitute mental health treatment. If you or a loved one are struggling with mental health issues, please seek a qualified therapist in your area. Hello, book friends. Welcome back to the Literary Therapist Podcast. I just want to give a little bit of a content warning here before we start that we will be talking about childhood trauma, anger, various things related to verbal abuse and neglect. If that doesn't feel like something safe for you to listen to at this time, go ahead and make sure you're taking care of yourself. That's really the most important thing. When we left off, Marilla and Matthew had decided to keep Anne. They hadn't told her yet because Marilla didn't think she would be able to sleep if she told her right away. So it's the next day, and it says, For reasons best known to herself, Marilla did not tell Anne that she was to stay at Green Gables until the next afternoon. It goes on to talk about how Marilla kept Anne busy with a bunch of different kinds of chores and things like that. When Anne had finished washing the dinner dishes, she suddenly confronted Marilla with the air and expression of one desperately determined to learn the worst. Her thin little body trembled from head to foot, her face flushed and her eyes dilated until they were almost black. She clasped her hands tightly and said in an imploring voice, "'Oh, please, Miss Cuthbert, won't you tell me if you're going to send me away or not?' I've tried to be patient all morning, but I really feel that I cannot bear not knowing any longer. It's a dreadful feeling. Please tell me. Marilla tells her she has to scald the dishcloth. If you are not somebody who scalds your dishcloth, awesome. Kills off the bacteria. Welcome to Bacteria Corner. Scald your dishcloths. Adopt Anne Shirley. (laughs) So Anne goes and she does that and then she comes back to Marilla And this is Marilla's response. Well, said Marilla, unable to find any excuse for deferring her explanation longer. I suppose I might as well tell you, Matthew and I have decided to keep you. That is, if you will try to be a good little girl and show yourself graceful. Why, child, whatever is the matter? I'm crying, said Anne in a tone of bewilderment. I can't think why. I'm as glad as can be. Oh, glad doesn't seem the right word at all. I was glad about the white way and the cherry blossoms, but this? Oh, it's something more than glad. I'm so happy. I'll try to be so good. It will be uphill work, I expect, for Mrs. Thomas often told me I was desperately wicked. However, I'll do my very best. But can you tell me why I'm crying? So here we have Anne learning that she's going to have a home going to have a home and she is crying and she doesn't know why. And it's probably because it's the first time she's ever cried out of happiness in her life. Marilla tells her it's because you're all excited and worked up. It's not. I think it's a kind of a trauma reaction in 
in reverse, like a relaxation of like, oh, I'm going to have a home. I'm going to be able to stay here. I'm going to be able to live with these people who are not insulting or neglecting me. Goes on to talk about Anne learning the Lord's Prayer. And that's what Marilla wants her to do. And Anne's very distractible. Sometimes people use this scene to try to prove that Anne has ADHD. But I think if I was an 11 year old orphan, and I just learned that I was going to be able to stay with people who had been kind to me, and honest with me and hadn't been verbally abusing me or neglecting me, I might be a little distractible too. I'm not saying Anne doesn't have ADHD. I'm saying that this is not evidence of it. She just got the best news of her life and now she's sat down to try to memorize something. So if you know anything about state-based learning, it's a miracle she's memorizing it. Anne's distractible. She gets distracted. And one of the times she's distracted, she says, Marilla, do you think that I shall ever have a bosom friend in Avonlea? Uh, a, a what kind of friend? A bosom friend, an intimate friend, you know, a really kindred spirit to whom I can confide my inmost soul. I've dreamed of meeting her all my life. I never really supposed I would, but... But so many of my loveliest dreams have come true all at once that perhaps this one will too. Do you think it's possible? Marilla tells her about Diana Berry, who lives over at Orchard Slope and is about Anne's age. And Anne asks if Diana has red hair because she could not stand to have a bosom friend with red hair. Marilla says Diana's a very pretty little girl. She has black eyes and hair and rosy cheeks, and she is good and smart, which is better than being pretty. Yeah, Anne does not agree. As a matter of fact, Anne responds with this soliloquy. Oh, I'm so glad she's pretty. Next to being beautiful oneself, and that's impossible in my case, it would be best to have a beautiful bosom friend. When I lived with Mrs. Thomas, she had a bookcase in her sitting room with glass doors. There weren't any books in it. Mrs. Thomas kept her best china and her preserves there, when she had any preserves to keep. One of the doors was broken. Mr. Thomas smashed it one night when he was slightly intoxicated. But the other was whole, and I used to pretend that my reflection in it was another little girl who lived in it. I called her Katie Maurice, and we were very intimate. I used to talk to her by the hour, especially on Sunday, and tell her everything. Katie was the comfort and consolation of my life. We used to pretend that the bookcase was enchanted, and that if I only knew the spell, I could open the door and step right into the room where Katie Maurice lived, instead of into Mrs. Thomas's shelves of preserves and china. And then Katie Maurice would have taken me by the hand and led me out into a wonderful place, all flowers and sunshine and fairies, and we would have lived there happy forever after. When I went to live with Mrs. Hammond, it just broke my heart to leave Katie Maurice. She felt it dreadfully, too. I know she did, for she was crying when she kissed me goodbye through the bookcase door. There was no bookcase at Mrs. Hammond's. But just up the river a little way from the house, there was a long, green little valley, and the loveliest echo lived there. It echoed back every word you said, even if you didn't talk a bit loud. 
So I imagined that it was a little girl called Violetta, and we were friends, and I loved her almost as well as I loved Katie Maurice. Not quite, but almost, you know. The night before I went to the asylum, I said goodbye to Violetta, and oh, her goodbye came back to me in such sad, sad tones. I had become so attached to her that I hadn't the heart to imagine a bosom friend at the asylum, even if there had been any scope for the imagination there. This is one of the saddest parts of the book. Here we have an 11-year-old girl trying to decide or trying to find out if there are any other girls her age that she could be friends with. Because at the age of 11, she has never had a friend. She has never had a relationship with another child of her own or similar age for whom she was not responsible. Because up to the age of 11, she was a caretaker for all of the children in her circle. Living in households where there was addiction, alcoholism, abuse, and neglect going on amongst the parents means that those children, they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. So even if one of the Thomas's children wanted to be a friend to Anne, they might have not wanted to draw attention to themselves because they would have possibly drawn abuse to themselves that normally went to Anne. This is common in houses where there's alcoholism, abuse, and neglect, where, you know, the kids might try to keep a low profile to keep out of people's way or to avoid angering a parent. As children get older, some of them will fall into different roles. Some of them will fall into kind of a protector or hero role. They might try to draw abuse away from other people to themselves. That can be a somewhat common thing that happens. But here's Anne, 11 years old, and the only children she has had any kind of relationship with are children who she's responsible to take care of. She's telling us now about her imaginary friends. Lots of kids have imaginary friends. These are not normal imaginary friends. She tells us about Katie Maurice, who's in basically the only piece of reflective glass in the Thomas household that hasn't been broken. She talked to her by the hour, especially on Sunday, told her everything. We were so intimate. And it's just so sad to me. (laughs) But it's also a defense mechanism. Children who are experiencing adverse childhood experiences will end up coming up with different defense mechanisms. So they will create looking glass friends. They'll create, you know, little friends that are echoes. I wouldn't be surprised if this was a big part of Anne's escapism and fantasy life. I think it's also a form of dissociation of kind of trying to leave where she's at emotionally and mentally, even though she can't leave physically. It's a reaction to trauma. It's a reaction to abuse and neglect. You know, talks some more. Marilla's uncomfortable with the conversation. And she tells Anne to go upstairs and continue learning the prayer. Upstairs, Anne's trying to imagine herself as being tall and regal, clad in a gown of trailing white lace with a pearl cross on my breast and pearls in my hair. My hair is of midnight darkness, and my skin is clear ivory pallor. 
My name is Lady Cordelia Fitzgerald. No, it isn't. I can't make that seem real. She's talking to herself. You're only Anne of Green Gables, and I see you just as you're looking now whenever I try to imagine I'm the Lady Cordelia. But it's a million times nicer to be Anne of Green Gables than Anne of Nowhere in particular, isn't it? We spent the first six chapters, seven chapters of Anne basically begging to belong someplace. She'd never had a home. She was so glad she was going to have a home. She was so glad she was going to live with Matthew and Marilla. She's never belonged to anyone. And now here she is, Anne of Green Gables. She has a place to be. The beginning of her being able to relax and heal from some of the trauma and neglect she's experienced. And and that's a good thing. But it won't be without its trials and tribulations, that's for sure. On chapter nine, Mrs. Rachel Lynde is properly horrified. This is a pretty famous scene. It's been in the shows and books and movies and everything that I've seen. I mean, obviously it's in the books. I just love how this chapter starts out. Anne had been a fortnight at Green Gables before Mrs. Lynde arrived to inspect her. Mrs. Rachel, to do her justice, was not to blame for this. A severe and unseasonable attack of grip had confined that good lady to her house ever since the occasion of her last visit to Green Gables. Grip is a word used for influenza back then. Mrs. Rachel was not often sick and had a well-defined contempt for people who were, but grip, she asserted, was like no other illness on earth and could only be interpreted as one of the special visitations of Providence. (laughs) So here's Rachel. She got the flu and she couldn't go out and about. And part of that was probably because she couldn't put on the damn corset because she could already not breathe. So why would you want to put on a corset and restrict your breathing further? She comes here to Green Gables and she talks about how she's heard some really surprising things that Marilla and Matthew have kept Anne. It's too bad there was such a mistake. Couldn't you have sent her back? Marilla says, we could have, but Matthew likes her and actually I like her myself too. She's a really bright little thing. Marilla said more than she had intended to say when she began, for she read disapproval in Mrs. Rachel's expression. So, Marilla's watching Rachel and knowing her disapproving expressions and saying and kind of being like, I like her. She's really bright. The house seems different already to try to defend herself for keeping Anne. Anne comes running in and finally meets Rachel face to face. She certainly was an odd looking little creature in the short, tight, wincy dress she had worn from the asylum, below which her thin legs seemed ungracefully long. Her freckles were more numerous and obtrusive than ever. The wind had ruffled her hatless hair into overbrilliant disorder. It had never looked redder than at that moment. Well, they didn't pick you for your looks, that's sure and certain, was Mrs. Rachel Lynn's emphatic comment. Mrs. Rachel was one of those delightful and popular people who pride themselves on speaking their mind without fear or favor. She's terrible skinny and homely, Marilla. Come here, child, and let me have a look at you. Lawful heart, did you ever see such freckles? And hair as red as carrots. Come here, child, I say. Anne came there. 
but not exactly as Mrs. Rachel expected. With one bound, she crossed the kitchen floor and stood before Mrs. Rachel, her face scarlet with anger, her lips quivering, her whole slender form trembling from head to foot. I hate you, she cried in a choked voice, stamping her foot on the floor. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. How dare you call me skinny and ugly? How dare you say I'm freckled and redheaded? You are a rude, impolite, unfeeling woman. Marilla admonishes her, but Anne's not done yet. How dare you say such things about me? She repeated vehemently. How would you like to have such things said about you? How would you like to be told that you were fat and clumsy and probably hadn't a spark of imagination in you? I don't care if I do hurt your feelings by saying so. I hope I hurt them. You have hurt mine worse than they were ever hurt before, even by Mrs. Thomas's intoxicated husband. And I'll never forgive you for it. Never. Never. Anne bursts into tears and runs up to her room because Marilla admonishes her again. Rachel, (laughs) Rachel says, well, I don't envy you your job bringing that up, Marilla, said Mrs. Rachel with unspeakable solemnity. And this is Marilla's response. You shouldn't have twitted her about her looks, Rachel. Mrs. Rachel gives a speech about how she won't be coming back to Green Gables because an orphan child who you don't know anything about is more important to me and you should not give her a talking to, you should beat her with a switch. And Marilla realizes she needs to go upstairs and talk to Anne. So she goes upstairs. Marilla goes into Anne's room. Anne's laying down. She's crying. Marilla tells her she needs to get off the bed because her boots are muddy. Marilla doesn't understand why Anne's so upset because Anne calls herself ugly all the time. She says, oh, but there's such a difference between saying a thing yourself and hearing other people say it. You may know a thing is so, but you can't help hoping other people don't quite think it is. I suppose you think I have an awful temper, but I couldn't help it. When she said those things, something just rose right up in me and choked me. I had to fly out at her. There's Anne explaining why she reacted so strongly to what Rachel said. And I want to say a few things about this from my perspective as a therapist. Number one. Telling people they're ugly and criticizing their physical appearance to their face is abuse. Nobody does it for any other reason. And it's one of the reasons that I actually don't really like to comment on people's physical appearances. It just kind of becomes a double-edged sword at a certain point. But it is abusive to talk about someone's physical appearance in their presence or to their face or both and call them ugly, um, you know, all of the things that are unfashionable in that society. Ugly, skinny, red hair, and freckles. So those are all insults, even though the red hair and freckles and skinny are all facts. A lot of people point to this scene with Rachel Lind as proof that Anne has ADD or ADHD, which are highly associated with anger and lack of emotional regulation or that she's on the autism spectrum, which can also bring troubles with emotional regulation. As a therapist, and as somebody who's read this book 20 times, I just think that those people are missing out on the fact that this is not an isolated incident for Anne. All her life, she has been told she's ugly, 
She has been teased for her red hair. I would not at all be surprised if carrots was one of the words that Mr. Thomas used to insult her. And if it was something he threw at her verbally in moments of abuse, this is a trauma reaction to a trigger associated with very traumatic events. Rachel herself does not mean to be abusive, but I will just say this, it's impact, not intent, that's important. Rachel doesn't intend to be abusive. The impact is that Anne is abused right? So those are two different things, but it's the impact that's important. Rachel's not intending to be abusive towards Anne. Rachel is not Mr. Thomas. Rachel has not abused Anne. Rachel is just commenting and she's surprised that at how Anne looks. You know, Anne's still in that short, tight, ugly, wincy dress because there weren't really off-the-rack clothes back at that time unless you were pretty rich. So Marilla's going to have to make her some dresses or somebody will have to make her some dresses. What Anne hears when Rachel is commenting negatively on her appearance is the same thing that Mr. Thomas and Mrs. Thomas and probably their children said about her appearance, probably in times of heightened emotion or intoxication or during or after a physical altercation in the household. The same things the Hammonds probably said to her the same thing that people and children at the asylum said to her. So when Anne hears carrots from Rachel, she's not thinking rationally. This is Rachel. This is Marilla's friend. She doesn't mean to abuse me. I'm not in danger. She is dragged back through all of those experiences of being in danger, of being unsafe. Her angry outburst is actually a sign of a trauma response. In a way, it's a good thing because her being angry means that she feels psychologically and emotionally safe enough to express a negative emotion. I'd be very surprised if Anne was viewed as an angry person by the families she worked with or even at the orphanage. It wouldn't surprise me at all if in those situations she felt unsafe and so she turned that anger inward or she sublimated it in some way, possibly by imagining making up stories, imaginary friends, all of that type of stuff. People who point to this as evidence of ADHD or autism or whatever, if you're not pointing to trauma, then you are at the very least missing a huge part of what makes Anne tick. And this is so common in psychology and in society in general, where we point to somebody and we say, they have ADHD, they have autism, they have an anger issue, they have this, they have that, without understanding the history of trauma and adverse childhood experiences, you're missing a large part of the puzzle if that exists. And if you're not looking at that trauma, not looking for that trauma, not asking about that trauma, then the treatment that you're going to do won't be trauma-informed, which can in itself cause more trauma. Anyway, it's kind of complex how trauma and anger are intertwined, but I found the 
the cptsdfoundation.org has a lot of really great resources about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD itself, and then complex PTSD, which is CPTSD. And it has this whole article on childhood anger, rage, and complex trauma. It talks about like what anger is for. Anger, like all emotions, serves the purpose of alerting us we are in some distress. Although anger is uncomfortable mentally and physically, it motivates us to address our needs, desires, and threats. However, unprocessed anger leads to many problems. One of the things that unprocessed anger leads to is angry outbursts, like the one Anne just had. It can turn into depression, it has all kinds of physical manifestations, headaches, and stuff like that. One of the other important things about the role of anger in healing complex PTSD is that similar to the process of grieving a loss, you go through similar stages when you're healing CPTSD. So you go through denial, depression, anger, bargaining, and acceptance. Those are the five stages of grief, which were written about by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It says each of these stages has its own characteristics and leads people to accepting their loss and moving on. While Elizabeth Kubler-Ross studied grief related to death, the five stages can apply to healing from complex trauma and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Survivors of childhood trauma have been through much and lost out on their childhoods, plus the parenting they needed. As you can see in the list of the five stages, anger is a necessary part of the grieving process. It is a natural and normal response to childhood trauma and should never be avoided or trivialized. Of course, it's important to treat the trauma and to go through the stages and to heal the anger and everything like that, but it is a pretty normal part of trauma. Anne is talking about how she had a trauma reaction, essentially a trauma response. And then Marilla says, well, now Mrs. Lynn's going to tell everybody about your bad temper, basically. Anne says, just imagine how you would feel if somebody told you to your face that you were skinny and ugly. An old remembrance suddenly rose up before Marilla. She had been a very small child when she had heard one aunt say of her to another, What a pity she is such a dark, homely little thing. Marilla was every day of fifty before the sting had gone out of that memory. I don't say that I think Mrs. Lynde was exactly right in saying what she did to you, Anne, Marilla admitted in a softer tone. Rachel is too outspoken. But that is no excuse for such behavior on your part. She was a stranger and an elderly person and my visitor, all three very good reasons why you should have been respectful to her. You were rude and saucy, and you must go to her and tell her you are very sorry for your bad temper and ask her to forgive you. And that response from Marilla is so empathetic and trauma-informed even though she doesn't know it. She remembers a traumatic experience where her looks were being commented on. It hurt her feelings. It took her a long time to heal from. She's probably the first person in Anne's life to ever say an adult was not right in how they treated Anne. And then she goes on to do two things that are really important. Empathy is important. The other things that are important is to say, your reaction was also not appropriate and you need to apologize for it. So acknowledge the wrong, you hold them accountable for their reaction you tell, and then you do something to hold them accountable. Anne says she's never going to ever apologize to Rachel Lind. Marilla tells her she has to stay in her room until she does. Anne stays in her room all that night, 
And all the next day, Rilla then has to explain what happened to Matthew because Matthew doesn't know what's going on and he needs to be told why Anne's stuck up in her room. When Marilla tells Matthew what happened, he says, this is his response, it's a good thing Rachel Lynn got a calling down. She's a meddlesome old gossip, was Matthew's consolatory rejoinder. Matthew is always going to side with Anne. He just absolutely is. He... She has him wrapped around her little finger. We will be revisiting that again and again. I think he very badly wanted children. He is really, I mean, in Anne's own words, he's really a kindred spirit. I think the two of them are empaths. I think there's something to the idea that Matthew is on the autism spectrum. I don't have any clinical proof for that, but read the book, see what you think. Marilla says Anne needs to be held accountable. Matthew agrees. He watches these trays of food go up to Anne's room and back from Anne's room and without the food being touched at all, and he's worried. In typical Matthew fashion, when Marilla goes to get the cows out of the back pasture, Matthew, who has not been upstairs in his own house for years because he sleeps in a bedroom off the kitchen, sneaks upstairs with the air of a burglar, knocks on Anne's door, goes in and talks to her. He says, how are you making it, Anne? And Anne smiles at him and says, I'm really lonely. Then again, I may as well get used to that because she's dramatic. She could be naturally dramatic. That's totally possible. It's also something that's amplified by childhood trauma. Also, it's just something 11-year-olds can do. Like, they can be pretty dramatic. They've had 11 years of experience, and so they think the way things are, the way they'll always be, it's just what happens. Matthew says, well, don't you think you'd better do it and have it over with? Marilla's a dreadful, determined woman. Well, now, Anne, don't you think you'd better do it and have it over with? Marilla's a dreadful, determined woman. Dreadful determined, Anne. Do it right off and have it over. Just smooth it over, so to speak. That's what I was trying to get at. Anne responds and says, I suppose I could do it to oblige you, said Anne thoughtfully. It would be true enough to say I am sorry because I am sorry now. But, you know, and she talks about how it's going to be so humiliating. And then she says, but still, I'd do anything for you if you really wanted me to. And that's Matthew and Anne's relationship just in a nutshell is the two of them doing things they don't want to do for the other person because they love each other. Anne tells Marilla she'll go and apologize. And then they go down to Mrs. Lynn's house. Here's Anne's famous apology. Anne's kneeling on the floor with her hands held out beseechingly. Oh, Mrs. Lynde, I am so extremely sorry, she said with a quiver in her voice. I could never express all my sorrow. No, not if I used up a whole dictionary. You must just imagine it. I have behaved terribly to you, and I've disgraced the dear friends, Matthew and Marilla, who have let me stay at Green Gables, although I'm not a boy. I am a dreadfully wicked and ungrateful girl, and I deserve to be punished and cast out by respectable people forever. It was very wicked of me to fly into a temper because you told me the truth. It was the truth. Every word you said was true. My hair is red and I'm freckled and skinny and ugly. What I said to you was true too, but I shouldn't have said it. Oh, Mrs. Lynde, please, please forgive me. If you refuse, it will be a lifelong sorrow to me. You wouldn't like to inflict a lifelong sorrow on a poor little orphan girl, would you? 
even if she had a dreadful temper? Oh, I am sure you wouldn't. Please say you forgive me, Mrs. Lynde. Again, the drama. And here's Rachel's response. There, there. Get up, child, she said heartily. Of course I forgive you. I guess I was a little too hard on you anyway. But I'm such an outspoken person. You just mustn't mind me, that's what. It can't be denied your hair is terrible red. But I knew a girl once, went to school with her in fact, whose hair was every mite as red as yours when she was young. But when she grew up, it darkened to a real handsome auburn. I wouldn't be a mite surprised if yours did too. Not a mite. Rachel is quick to anger and quick to forgive. That's that's how she is throughout the whole book. And she forgives Anne very quickly. Not only does she forgive Anne, but she's probably the first adult in Anne's life to give her any kind of hope that her hair might not be red one day. <laughs> That's actually really important, right? Rachel admits that she's too outspoken. She admits that she shouldn't have said what she did. She admits that Anne should just ignore her, basically, and then gives her some hope that what Anne's dearest wish is, which is for her, for her hair to not be red and all this type of stuff, that that could come true. And that's a really important gesture to build that relationship between Anne and Rachel, because what Anne needs in her life is people who are in her corner and can be gentle, but still hold her accountable for her bad behavior, um, for her bad temper, for outbursts, for stuff like that. When they're getting close to Green Gables and Anne suddenly came close to Marilla and slipped her hand into the older woman's hard palm. It's lovely to be going home and know it's home, she said. I love Green Gables already, and I never loved any place before. No place ever seemed like home. Oh, Marilla, I'm so happy. So here we have Anne having faced her first major trial while living at Green Gables, having a big trauma reaction and being treated with respect and care by the people who are responsible for her. The ending of the chapter is that she is happy and it might be the first time in her life that she's been happy. And I just think that's really important that she's starting to relax. She's starting to be happy. She's starting to settle in and feel psychologically safe, which is very important when you are healing from trauma. It is, I think, nearly impossible to heal from trauma if you are not in a psychologically, emotionally, and physically safe space. I hope this episode has been helpful for you. And I think it's really interesting that this book was written about 70 years before the idea of PTSD was even out there. And before we even had the term shell shock. And here is a really good example of trauma and trauma reactions. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash the literary therapist session over.